Guru Nation. Welcome to episode 532 of Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. In this episode, I interviewed the CEO of Azurex, uh, which is a biotech company, James Saperstein, and we discuss uh, his products. I am particularly interested in the checkpoint inhibitor and the GI COVID um, IP. But there's definitely a lot going on with this company, with a small market cap company. And we also talk about, there's a lot of nuggets here for people looking to either work for CROs or start CROs or be consultants to these small cap biotechs, which I've been talking about forever. Uh, There's a lot in here as well. I try to talk about the industry as well with somebody who's been in the industry for like 30 years, if not longer. So definitely let me know what you think. Uh, in the show notes, we get the YouTube memberships page, 10 bucks a month. We have a monthly Zoom meeting just with the YouTube members. We also have exclusive videos just for the YouTube members. Uh, and we also have early access to certain videos uh, for the YouTube members. So let me know what you think about that. Also in the show notes is the CRA and CRC Academy. And then if you need help getting studies for your site, or even starting a site, text me 949-415-6256. And with that being said, enjoy the show. Hello, Guru Nation. Welcome back to another episode. Uh, We're covering biotech stocks on this channel. We go even more in depth on our other channel, the Clinical Research Circle. And we've got the CEO of Azurex Biopharma, James Saperstein. He happens to be Latino as well. I'm not wearing this shirt because of him. It's just the one that was available in my closet, uh, the next one in the queue. But James is also Latino. And uh, we were talking a little bit before we recorded about maybe having him join one of our biotech series uh, for Latinos and clinical research. So touching all brands here, touching all mm-hmm. brands with Azurex Biopharma, but we've got a really exciting uh, podcast for you guys. We're going to talk to James, who's the president and CEO of Azurex Biopharma. Like I said, um, he has a solid background in biotech. I'm going to let him kind of give us like a two-minute synopsis of his career and how he got to this point. And then we're going to dive deep into uh, the pipeline uh, the GI-related things that Azurex has uh, and kind of use the article that we wrote as a, just a little focal point for uh, explaining what Azurex is, why people are excited about it, and then we're going to go deeper into it over the next series of videos. So, James, uh, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So let's, why don't you give us like a, like a background of, you know, like a, like a career synopsis. How did you get to this point? I'm, I have your LinkedIn profile up. It seems like you've done a lot of different uh, roles with, with various biotechs and um, uh, you're a board member uh, of several, uh, the biotech innovation organizations. So can you kind of give us a little bit of a background? Sure. Um, so I'm a pharmacist with an MBA, and I started my career at Eli Lilly. Actually, that's where I met our, our current chief medical officer, Jim Pennington, when he was a professor at Harvard Medical School many, many moons ago uh, in infectious diseases. 
And uh, then I spent uh, the next 17 years in Big Pharma uh, with the uh, Lily and then Hoffman Roche, Bristol Myers Squibb. Uh, what's not on my LinkedIn profile uh, is that Bristol Myers Squibb, one of the things I was most proud of was uh, early in the HIV AIDS epidemic, working with the United Nations and putting together programming, philanthropic programs through Bristol Myers Squibb. I put together a program called Secure the Future, which um, it's kind of leading to where we are now because it's like the early days of COVID and trying to figure out, you know, how we map this out, how we structure distribution systems. And I, I was really at the forefront of a lot of those things. Uh, so moving uh, past Bristol-Myers, then I went small to a tiny little company no one had ever heard of at the time called Gilead Sciences. Um, I was one of the first marketers there and I launched their, their flagship product uh, called Tenofovir into HIV, uh, got recruited out to Serona, which I moved back to the East Coast, ran uh, the US group metabolic and endocrinology uh, for Serono, and then decided, you know, I, I wanted to do things on my own. So I went to work in venture capital and founded my first company called Torbira Therapeutics, uh, which eventually was sold uh, for an indication in Nash uh, to uh, Allergan at that point before they were acquired by AbbVie. Uh, in between, I've done a couple of other smaller companies and then got a call to take a look at AzRx. Uh, AzRx is in the GI space. And when I didn't know anything about it, quite frankly, when I looked at it, first I saw Jim Pennington's name and I said, wow, I'd love to work with Jim again. I got so much respect for him. But then I thought back to my career and I said, uh, look at their product, which was MS1819, uh, which is for... Uh, pancreatic, uh, you know, acute pancreatitis, but also for GI disorders uh, for cystic fibrosis kids. And I said, this is very similar to uh, my first foray into pharmaceuticals when I was selling insulin back in the day, human insulin, where um, porcine derived insulin had been around for about 85 years. And we were the first human insulin on the market. It was uh, back in 1984. Uh, it was uh, DNA, uh, regenerative medicine, and people just were saying, why would we want to use this? Uh, our our, our porcine-derived insulins were working great. Well, back then, uh, we were out to replace the porcine-derived product, uh, which we eventually did, and we're looking at the same thing with ms You've got a pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy that's made from you know, crushed-up pig pancreas, that's been around for hundreds, you know, hundred years, if not more. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of antigenicity issues associated with it. And we've got MS-1819, which is more human than what's currently on the market. We make it from yeast enzymes uh, and should be able to replace the porcine-derived products. So uh, my career's kind of come full circle um, and taking a, a company like this forward. And you're right, Dan, I do sit on a bunch of boards uh, but I also I sit on the biotechnology uh, and innovation organization board where I sit on a board with, uh, you know, that sets policy for the biotech uh, world. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. I've had a great and interesting career. Yeah, no, definitely. I'm always curious, how does that work? I mean, we always talk on this channel about the importance of networking. And once you've been in this industry long enough, I guess that just comes naturally to many people, but how do you just get a call and say, hey, let's take a look at Azurex? I mean, what was the context there for Azurex needing a uh, new leadership? Can you kind of give us a little bit of color on that? Sure. Um, 
people like myself, we get calls all the time. Um, not so much for for us to go out and look for another job, but also to network, you know, people looking for CEOs or other executives to take on other opportunities. Um, I actually was not working as a, as a CEO when I got a call uh, from a banker on AzRx, uh, but I was always getting calls and people were saying, you know, there's an opportunity in Portland, there's an opportunity in Seattle, there's an opportunity in Boston. And uh, believe it or not, I've relocated 31 times in my life. So, oh, wow. <laughs> um, I, I was pretty tired of, of packing and moving, and so was my family. So uh, part of this phone call was, can I just stay where I am? And they said, yeah, um, I think it's a semi-virtual company. We've got a facility in France. We've got an office in New York. We have our clinical team in California. So there's no set headquarters. So it'd be you traveling to these places. Um, so that, that was interesting to me. Uh, what was also interesting was a turnaround opportunity uh, and a legitimate chance to turn the company around. And that's what I enjoy doing. I enjoy a challenge. And AzRx certainly was a challenge. Uh, they'd been around for five years at that point. Uh, stock price was, was not where the board or the investors wanted it to be. And uh, it was basically a whiteboard for me to come in and just try to change everything. So a banker who knows me well said, are you up for this type of challenge? And I talked to my wife and because uh, it's a group effort and she said, okay. And that's wow. what, uh, why I did it. Was AzureX always in, into uh, GI research? Correct, they were. Um, the, the company was founded um, on this, this asset that was uh, licensed in from, from a French entity um, and that's how the name Azure is actually means blue um, or blue coast. That, that's because the, the, the lab was in a place called Long Laude, which is in the southern part of France, close to the blue coast of Côte d'Azur. And uh, that's how it got his name. So they were always in the GI space. They had two other assets uh, that I inherited, uh, which were in the, in the infectious disease space, but also related to gastrointestinal disease as well. Uh, we since uh, just de-emphasized those assets and gave them back because the company was spending a lot of money there. And I just didn't think they were too far away from the clinic. And I decided to prioritize uh, our, our money on MS-1819 when I first took over. I see. Okay. So MS-1819 was, uh, I'm assuming when you took over preclinical or was it phase one yet? Actually, it was in phase two already. They oh, okay. had, uh, the company had completed a phase two program in chronic uh, pain and acute pancreatitis. Uh, they had a data readout on that, and they had just completed uh, the first readout on a, a, a study called Option, which is for cystic fibrosis patients who have GI uh, disorders. They cannot uh, take in nutrients. Most people think of cystic fibrosis patients as young kids who have trouble breathing. They have trouble because uh, they, they're lacking an enzyme, which helps convert um, the ability to uh, get rid of mucus in their lungs. So they get mucus buildup. But they, these kids also have uh, gastric disorders as well. They, the same enzyme does not, that's missing does not allow for them to uh, absorb nutrients. And uh, because of that, these kids have a lot of stools per day. They have diarrhea. They're very thin and they need to start taking these, these enzyme replacement therapy products in order to absorb nutrients and start gaining weight. 
I see. And then, so you, you joined uh, Azurex October 2019, um, looks like on your LinkedIn, right before, like just a few months before the world change with COVID. Um, when did you guys get the idea that, you know, FW1022 niclosamide could be potential application for COVID GI infections? Yeah, early on or uh, did you give it like a few months uh, after the outbreak or how did that work out? Kind of. That, that's, that's, that's a great question though. So my background, uh, I've been part of or directed 23 drug launches in my career. Most of them, the majority of them have been in infectious diseases. So uh, I, I would characterize myself uh, as an infectious disease expert. Uh, you, you're in the space long enough, you, you really know as much as most infectious disease doctor or more. And when COVID hit, um, I was asked to be on a task force, um, basically because I, I, I'd been there at the beginning of HIV, and this was no different in the sense that uh, there was no cure, you know, people weren't sure about vaccines or oral medications, what we could repurpose, uh, it, we, we knew COVID, was going to be a third world problem as well. There's a lot of similarity with HIV. I had a colleague of mine. He's um, was around. He had a clinic during the 80s with the HIV uh, mm -hmm. epidemic. And when COVID hit, he's still a research site owner. He's like, this is exactly the same, the same uh, sentiment that we had back then, you know, 80s and 90s. So you're seeing the same exact thing on your end? Same, same exact thing. Um, so I volunteered at BIO to be on this COVID task force. In parallel with that, uh, there's a friend of mine who owns First Wave BIO. Uh, his name is Gary Glick. I actually went to college with him as an undergrad. Uh, we took organic chemistry together. Thank God, because I'm not sure I would have gone through. I hate that but class. The, <laughs> but Gary is a prolific uh, inventor. And he's had a lot of success um, with other companies. Uh, his first company he founded was called Lysera. And he, uh, a couple of other companies since then that he's since sold. When he started Lysera, I, I got a call. I hadn't spoken to him in quite a while. And he said, look, you know, I, I'm new at this. I'm, I'm a chemist. I'm working at the University of Michigan. Uh, we have these compounds. How do I find funding? <laughs> he knew nothing about this. He's a scientist. So I, I assisted him. And that was back. I would say 2005, 2006. Um, and actually a couple of my investors in my first company, Tabira, became his investors. They really liked what he had. So Gary and I have kept in touch over the years. So when I started AzureX, he said, look, I'm looking at this product, Niclosamide. We're repurposing it. We have, I've done some bench work and figured out a great way to to reinvent this and, and we have this micronized version and he explained it to me. And he said, uh, we're looking at it for GI. You know, do you have anyone who might be interested? Because I always, every time I got a call, he'd ask, do you have anyone who's interested through my network? And I said, hold on, Gary, I'd like to take a look at it. So I had my team take, you know, started examining the compound for GI issues. Sure enough, COVID hits at the same time. Wow. And Gary says, by the way, there's this, great little study out of the, the Pasteur Institute in Korea where they're looking at repurposed products. They did a, a screening and niclosamide shows the best activity against COVID of any older products. This product is an anti, uh, 
parasitic that was wow. used for, for GI parasites. So I'm sure they had data on azithromycin, on ivermectin, all that stuff. All those things, including remdesivir, which uh -huh. was the Gilead drug that came out. So right. at that point, uh, I already had negotiated with Gary uh, on, on the GI price. But then when COVID came, Gary said, guess what? My price is going up. It's going to cost you more. So it took us quite a while to get the deal worked out. But it all happened in parallel. So First Wave Bio is looking at a, a variety of different indications for niclosamide. We're interested in all of them, but we decided for expedience, let's license in for COVID and for checkpoint inhibitor colitis, which is a very small indication. It's an orphan indication, and that's going to be our first look. So because the vaccines were coming, and quite frankly, I, I always have inside information in terms of what's going on with COVID. We're always like two or three weeks ahead of the legitimate news. Um, mm -hmm. I, I also know the Delta variant. I've known about it for for a long time. There's a gamma variant, which is coming post the Delta variant. That's the next one. Wow. Um, so I personally know COVID's not going away. Which one should we be most concerned of? Well, Delta for sure, because it's yeah. spreading pretty quickly, but gamma is right on its heels. And I, I've been saying this for a very long time to anyone who wants to listen. The vaccines are great and everyone should get vaccinated. It's going to stop people from dying, but it's not the answer. Uh, the answer, we're going to have to drug our way out of this, just like HIV. Uh, I've always believed that there's never going to be enough HIV drugs because of resistance. Uh, I, I, it's going to sound a little sick what I'm saying. I, I've always been fascinated with HIV. It's, I've called it the black monster, the black plague, because the, the virus just says this just incredible way of mutating and 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 no matter how long you're on drugs that are working the drug will find another doorway in uh, the, the the virus will find another doorway in into your cd4 cells and mutate uh -huh. what's beautiful about <laughs> it sounds sick but what's beautiful about covid is uh the virus has found a way to mutate so much more rapidly than right. hiv right that it's going to keep mutating that we, we call them variants i like to call them mutations but it's gonna keep mutating. What's important here, let me explain this, and I know I'm glad you're filming this, is that when you look at the vaccines, uh, the vaccines work really on these strands, these, these RNA strands, or we call the spike proteins of the virus. That's where they work. Um, the clozomide does not work on these strands, on, on the spikes. The clozomide works on the round part of, of the virus. It works on the, on the cell, for lack of a better term, the cell membrane, and it splices that membrane. So it doesn't matter what the spike protein is, niclosamide will not allow the virus to replicate. And it's gonna be very hard for your mutations to come in there. Whereas the spike proteins, mutations abound all over it because there are RNA strands. The niclosamide works on the virus itself, not the I strand. See. And so it doesn't saying, matter what mutation or variant you have, niclosamide will work. Uh, yeah, so I'm not sure if you're if you know Dr. Sabine Hazen uh, out here in California. I actually monitor some of her studies. Shout out to Progena Biome. She's um, she's running her own trials. That's her company, and she's a microbiome expert. And this she's basically saying the same thing you're saying. Uh, she's doing a whole bunch of studies on the microbiome, and she said. You know, this uh, 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 the virus likes to hide 
in reservoirs in the GI tract. And when we wrote this article on Latinos in clinical research, uh, on doing the due diligence on your company, we have the same thing, literally the same thing she said written down here. So there's definitely something there when world-class experts are all saying the same thing, basically. Yeah, and I don't know her, uh, but she's right. Uh, and and she's, she's right that the microbiome might provide an answer as well. Uh, we truly, in fact, the name of our trial for COVID is Reservoir. That's the name of our trial. Okay. So Ah, yes, I saw that. Now it makes yeah. sense. So I've been advocating for this for a while. Like HIV, HIV hides uh, due to temperature gradients. It hides in certain parts of the body. We believe, those of us who are on the task force believe, well, I'm not on the task force anymore. I should say that. I'm off. But we believe that the virus hides in the GI tract. It hides in the lower level of pulmonary tissue. That's why, you know, it, it is a, a pulmonary virus. And we believe it also hides in brain tissue and possibly mm. in cardiac tissue as well. Wow. So definitely a lot of potential for this FW1022 uh, phase two top line data. It says here on the July presentation, quarter one, 2022. Are we still on track for that? We are. We are. And hopefully um, if we get data that's early, um, and I've been talking to my chief medical officer about this, because uh, this is something we did at Gilead early on. That was my idea way back when, which is looking at pooled data. So the study is closed. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a blinded study, so we can't open it or it delegitimizes our statistical power in the, in the trial. But you can take a chance, you can chant, you take a look at a pool, day, a pool of data, meaning that you don't open the, the data to look at particular patients or specific patients. You look at trends that are happening in the trial and you present that to the FDA. And the FDA will then do what it wants in terms of review. We're, we're, as a sponsor, as a drug company, we're not clued in on what the FDA is looking at, but we're giving them a package of pooled data. The FDA at that point, because it is COVID and they are looking for answers, if they see through the pooled data based on what they've seen in, in the past with other antivirals, that they think it's, something's there, that, that they like to say there's the there there and it's working, they will probably ask us to unblind the data at that point and move us towards accelerated approval. I see. Uh, but we allow the FDA to make that decision. It's not something yeah. we're, we're going to do. Where, where in the process are you with that right now? Uh, we're pretty far away. We've actually just started the study. Uh, our original protocol was looking at just hospitalized patients, and we were only doing it in the United States. Mm. The vaccines have changed that, uh, that parameter, quite frankly, significantly. There aren't that many hospitalized patients anymore. So we're in the midst of changing our protocol uh, to looking at patients who are, who are severely sick but not necessarily hospitalized. And now our patient numbers are starting to pick up. We're also looking uh, – where uh, in, in other countries like the Ukraine and India, where there's a Delta variant that is, is more prevalent. Um, and we want to make sure that we, we get all variants. Oh, yeah. yeah. Minimizes our data. India. So you're in the middle of that protocol amendment right now? Correct. Okay. How, what, how many patients are you looking for in this study? Between uh, 40 and 60. I see. Okay. And so how, how many sites do you think you need for, uh, to pull that off? 
Right now, uh, we I believe we have 11 sites that are open. Uh, we're looking at more sites. Okay. All, all U.S. currently or all over? All over. Right now, the U.S. sites are the only ones open, but we're looking to open up abroad. It's just going to take a month or two. Obviously, there's regulatory authorities that we're in negotiation yeah, with. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I've, in my experiences as a site owner, you know, and I work with a lot of sites across the country, it's been tough to get the COVID, COVID patients now, um, which is, I mean, I guess is a good thing for the world, but, but it, for us doing research, you know, it's kind of tough to get these patients. So um, I think amending the protocol is actually a, a good strategy uh, for non-hospitalized patients. Well, I agree. And it's very political. And, you know, that's where some of the similarities are there with HIV, which was very political back, you know, in the early 80s, you know, God forbid anyone admitted that, you know, HIV AIDS was an issue. I mean, Reagan didn't even talk about AIDS, you know, until he was forced to. Um, we're looking at sites in Latin America, for instance, where, you know, it's just going bonkers down there with COVID. Yeah. But Politically, uh, these governments have purchased the Sino vaccine, the Chinese vaccine, which we know the results are not great. Right. Uh, so they're not giving us a lot of access to their patients. Wow. Uh, which would be great. Because, Is that Latin uh, America falls in that category too? Correct. Wow. Wow. Okay. Um, so I guess it's a positive news that the protocol is being amended. Um, and uh, when do you think that's going to actually occur? You were saying a month or two? Yeah, we're hoping by the end of July, early August, uh, we, we've amended the protocol. The FDA has not given us final approval, I and mean, we've had conversations with them. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we're opening up sites in, in the Ukraine and, and India. We started doing that in early June. It takes a couple of months to get that going. Um, you also have to deliver drug to them as well. So, you know, everything is slow now. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy, but even shipping things are just, everything's got to be double checked, triple checked. Mm -hmm. It's just, mm -hmm. as you know, supply chain has been called to a halt. Right. Well, uh, the 505 B2 is that anticipated, right? Uh, for, uh, niclosamide. It is, but that's anticipated for, uh, the checkpoint inhibitor. Ah, uh, I see. I see. It's it's for COVID. I believe it'll be accelerated approval. Uh, okay. Um, if the FDA sees that we're, we're effective, uh, look, the FDA has been great. Much they've been very criticized. I believe unfairly right. by a lot of folks who don't know what they're talking about. Quite frankly, uh, they've been great at getting these COVID uh, products out as quickly as they can. So. Uh, as far as the um, next uh, milestone, I guess what a lot of people are interested in is the phase two top line data for the combination MS-1819. Um, can you talk a little bit about when we can expect uh, those results? Yes. Uh, so we put out top line data in June, uh, 18 out of 20 patients. And again, it was very top line because that's the guidance I'd given Wall Street, and I, I didn't want to uh, not make it. Uh, we have our final two patients in, so the, all of those things are being tabulated. Um, we're getting close to data lock on the trial. So we hope to have that data third quarter this year that we can present uh, in the public domain. Uh, 
I know some people who, who write on blogs, uh, they send me emails. Uh, they're telling me everyone's expecting the data. I'm not sure why, because I haven't <laughs> said it was coming uh, anytime soon. But uh, we, you're the first to hear we're expecting a third quarter this year. Perfect, perfect. Breaking it first here, guys. The internet, don't tell me I don't do anything for you guys. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm excited about the um, FW1022, personally. Um, I was talking to Richard Gar. I don't know. Do you know Richard Gar from Curative Biotech? No, I, I know the company, but I don't know. Okay. Him. So he was basically tell, he's confirming what you said. They're not doing any COVID-related things. They, they have a couple of interesting things, a couple of 505B2s. This is an interesting company. Uh, they said the FDA is not even looking at anything right now unless it's COVID, more or less. Right? So I think that's, uh, for Azurex, that's uh, good news when it comes to FW1022. Uh, in my opinion. So what do you, what are you guys most excited about? Are you personally, um, you know, as of right now? Well, I have to tell you, I'm excited about three things in particular. One with MS1819, we've seen the results. Uh, we're doing a new formulation, which uh, is the same formulation AbbVie has got with Creon, which is their, their, you know, our biggest competitor. They sell by 1.25 billion a year. So now we have the same manufacturer doing our micronized beadlets. Hopefully we get good results on that. So I'm excited to see those results that will come by the end of the year. Um, then with COVID-19, uh, if, if our theory is correct, uh, this could be huge uh, for patients and for us, uh, obviously for the company. Honestly, it's not anything we're going to do on our own. We're too small to bring it to market. But as soon as we have positive data, I'm sure some company will come calling knocking on the door, wanting to make a deal because uh, it'll be a legitimate global <laughs> drug at that point. Right. And I also want to point out, we've got patent rights uh, for the next 20 years. Um, and with our micronized version, there are other neclosamides being developed, but not oral formulations. And they don't have our micronized version of it. So you've got to give a whole lot of drug. Uh, we're the only U.S.-based manufacturer to have neclosamide with this micronized version. So we're, we're very excited about that. I see. And then the Can third- Can you talk a little asset, bit about- Oh, sorry, 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 go ahead. Go ahead with the third one. I wanna get back to the micronized- the Sure, the third asset, which is checkpoint inhibitor colitis, I know it's a mouthful, but the checkpoint inhibitors, uh, better known as Ervoy, Abdevo, Keytruda, are some of the biggest selling products on the market right now. Uh, and these these drugs, you know, I don't make them, so I'm not making the commercial for them. But they're they're godsends to folks who have cancer. I mean, it's people who had no hope uh, of living or survival are doing well. Uh, a lot of them are. So the these drugs are terrific. The problem with them is you do get a fair amount of diarrhea with them, um, and that diarrhea leads to colitis. And as soon as you get a fair amount of diarrhea, you have to go off the drug, mm -hmm. and it's very hard to rechallenge the people. We're on those drugs. So we're working with some huge centers, MD Anderson, Memorial Sloan Kettering, University of Mass, you know, Mass General. So some of our sites that have signed on already are very excited about this because if we could treat patients in what we, we call grade one or grade two diarrhea, which reduces the diarrhea for these folks and does not lead to colitis and hospitalization, these patients do not have to come off their checkpoint inhibitors. So we're very excited wow. to start this study. We've got some of the top oncologists working with us. Uh, they've joined our scientific advisory board. We'll announce that very soon. We, that'll be an announcement that's coming. 
because we're still doing all the paperwork. So we believe this is going to work. Uh, First Wave Bio has uh, data on proctitis or proctitis that we've seen. Uh, excellent results. Uh, it's their results. So I, I cannot talk about that yet because it's theirs right. and their private company, but we're very excited. And that's why we licensed it in for checkpoint inhibitor colitis. I see. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. Wow. That is exciting. That's actually, I, I monitor, I'm a contract CRA. So I do monitor I, right now. I'm monitoring two breast cancer studies. One of them is immunotherapy. And yeah, you see the grade two, grade three diarrhea all the time. Matter of fact, patients get hospitalized. You get some SAEs because of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's initiated phase 1B slash 2A initiating second half of 21. Correct. Has it started yet or just site selection right now? It's site selection. Uh, as you can imagine, we're going through all the, all the IRBs and you know okay. everybody's tweaking the protocols. And then we got to tweak it back and send it to other IRBs. If you still uh, need a site, I got a site for you. If you need a site. <laughs> well, we'll be in touch for sure. And okay. So it, as you know, just IRB and site selection takes three or four months. So. Oh, yeah. I mean, if not longer. Um, so when you mean initiation, second half 21, you mean first patient screened? Correct. Okay. Gotcha. And how many patients are you guys looking for in that study? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I don't have the final number. We're looking in between 30 and 55, but you know, that's a question for Jim Pennington. I see. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll interview Jim on the next, uh, mm-hmm. on the clinical research circle. Everybody go subscribe there. Uh, so c- as we wrap up, I guess, thank you so much for, this is a really good interview. I guess there's a lot more we can discuss. I mean, we barely touched on the pancreatic insufficiency, cystic fibrosis. Um, exp- you heard it here first though, top line data quarter three, mm-hmm. quarter three. So can you talk a little bit about the micronized niclosamide? I just to, is that for sure. both FW 1022 and 420? Yes, it's, it's for both. So niclosamide has been around a very, very long time. Uh, it's actually approved in this country in 1982. Um, and it's not used anymore. Uh, the problem with niclosamide uh, is you have to give a lot of drug in order to get some effect because it's not systemically absorbed in the GI tract. So literally goes right through you, you know, uh, you take a lot or you take it rectally and, you know, and it's not absorbed. Gary Glick at First Wave Bio figured out a way to micronize it, make, make it, it's almost like, you know, you talk about nanotechnology, making the molecules so small, but gives it a much larger surface area on a small molecule. So basically you're giving less drug and, and covering the same amount of surface area in the GI tract. So you, you can take more of it, in essence. You can take more drug, you can have a higher effect. So the micronized version versus the normal version of niclosamide, you're seeing almost a 200-fold increase in effect or efficacy with the micronized version. So wow. we, we stand to, to – that's why it works really – in the GI tract and, and, and uh, proctitis and checkpoint inhibitor colitis, because you're delivering so much more drug and it's just taking out because it, it works also as an anti-inflammatory. So it helps reduce all that inflammation that you see with diarrhea and colitis and you don't need steroids either. So it just reduces it way, way down. And that's what micronization does. Wow. Thank you. That's uh, <laughs> we should splice that up into like a one minute lecture 
Um, I have before we go, and thank you so much. I know we're going over. I have like a few. I had to. I have to ask these questions uh, from the internet. I'm only going to ask two because, by the way, hats off to you, publicly traded CEO of a bio. I don't know how you do it. There's just so much like negativity online. Every single one of these companies I look at, you know, most of the time they have a very strong community. You guys do as well, but there's always these negative people on there. Uh, it's just not fair. The kind of things that they're asking. I mean, if they, they need to watch this video to get the context, the inside baseball, it's not so easy uh, to just do things like that. But anyways, that rants out of the way. This is a fairly good question. I don't know if you can answer it. Is there a timeline on when we can expect news for the part one arm uh, for the first nine to 18 patients of the niclosamide trial? Well, that's a good one. I, I know. I think you're going to see something towards the end of this year, early next year. We, we have to keep this blinded. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what I figured from. Uh, and then the last one from the community. And then I have one that's like inside baseball, just for researchers. Investors could care less about that one. Uh, but this one is from the investors. Is there any way to get emergency use for COVID GI symptoms without having to wait on FDA approval next year? That's a very legitimate question. We're looking at that. Uh, I actually have a few investors who have emailed me directly who have had COVID and have some pretty severe GI issues. Yeah. So um, once once we have enough drug for the whole trial, we're we're going to take a look at emergency use authorization. Not okay. sorry, not emergency use, but like what we call a named patient program, so that we can put the patient into the trial and give them drug. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay, and then the last question from me, this investors could care less, but uh, I care. And I know a lot of my audience cares because we're this is clinical researchers for the most part. Investors second, researchers first. Uh, you've been around long enough, right? I'm assuming Azurex is using a CRO for this study. Yes. You've seen the CROs gain so much market share, become so powerful. What are your thoughts on this? Not not to say you have a good or bad experience with CROs, but just are you seeing this trend? Are other colleagues talking about this? Is there going to be a pushback to in-house monitoring? Like what? Just give me a little bit of your thoughts on this. I got to tell you, Dan, that is a Pandora's box of a question. I know. Um, that's why I ask. <laughs> um, this is my own personal feeling and opinion. We do have a CRO we're working in with. It's a large CRO. Uh, I actually like smaller CROs uh, because they're a little bit more efficient. Um, I, the smaller CROs, you don't have to pay for all the, this overhead that comes along with it. Um, to me, what's important is a good project manager, a good medical director, and good CRAs. If you have that in a CRO, no matter what's the size, you can run a successful trial. Uh, again, just my opinion, I've done multiple, multiple studies. Um, I've been in situations that have been very unhappy and have had to go you know, talk about litigation with CROs because they're not fulfilling what they're supposed oh. to be fulfilling. Um, and then I've had small CROs uh, specifically in country uh, for instance, I'll just choose one in Thailand, for instance, where it was an in-country in, in CRO 
tiny, eight people. They were just legit. They were so, so good. They got a trial done like that uh, and, and clean and beautiful results. And so I would like to see uh, the stoppage of the consolidation. I think CROs are getting too big and you're paying for too much overhead. I, I, I rather have CROs where you have people who have a vision for what they want to do and have a passion for what they do and, and just run trials. I hope it goes back to that, but I don't think it will because you're getting a lot of private equity getting involved and it's such a legitimate money-making model that uh, you got big, big money coming in and consolidating everything. Yeah, we we almost should do, if you have time, maybe in a few weeks or whenever your schedule allows, we should just do a podcast on that topic because that's, uh, if you're up for it, I mean, that's uh, something that I'm personally interested in and investors, again, I doubt they even know. So these guys tweeting on uh, Twitter have no clue what it takes. That's why you guys need to watch, educate yourselves. You know, this is not so easy to run a, a multi-product clinical trials going on all at the same time. A lot of work involved. So uh, thank you so much, James. I really appreciate it. Uh, we'll definitely reach out regarding Latinos and clinical research. I think that's uh, the audience there would be happy, really happy to get you on there. And then we'll follow up with Azurex for clinical research circle. And if you're up for it, I'd love a CRO discussion with you um, some point. I would love to do it. I'll just close on one thing. It's all about passion. Maybe because I'm a Latino and maybe that's what the folks who, who, who write on the internet don't get uh, at the Twitter world. You've got to be passionate about what you do. Uh, the reason I left Big Pharma is because I was so passionate about all the projects I worked on. Everyone used to tell me, you belong in a small company. You really do. And at that point, Gilead was a small place. Everybody there was just passionate about helping people with HIV AIDS. And to me at AzRx, it's all about the patient. The investors are important. Don't get me wrong. And my responsibility is to the investors. But I'm passionate about what I do. I want to help people. And, uh, and I want to help investors. So I need investors to line up behind us. Stop shorting the stock because that doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help us get the drug out there. And it doesn't help us with our clinical trials. Right. So good, me- good message. I think we need uh, more of that. I'm getting the same sentiment from just about every biotech that I bring on, CEO or VP or whatever. So excellent. Well said. Way to close it out. And uh, we'd be happy to continue discussions with you guys at Azurex. And thank you so much, James. I'll have James's LinkedIn underneath this video if you want to connect with James. And if you're listening on the podcast, it's in the show notes as well. So thank you guys for watching, listening. Thank you, James. I really appreciate it. And we'll catch you all later. Bye-bye. Thank you, Dan.